Coming up, Wild Dog Living. Stay tuned. Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond. This is Johanna Wildock, and you are tuned to Wildock Living, the program about living sustainably and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m., and it alternates with the Cannabis Hour. If you would like to get in contact or have any questions about this program or suggestions for future topics, you can reach me by email. Just send an email to contact at wildoak.org. Today, we have two fascinating topics. We're going to start out talking to the author of a book called Slavery for Peanuts, and we're going to, I'm going to share with you in a moment what that's all about. It's a really fascinating topic, and uh, stay tuned for that. And then uh, at the uh, in about half an hour, I'm going to be talking to Leona Walden, who is the illustrator for a newly issued book called Country Women about about um, homesteading uh, in Mendocino County. Uh, uh, also a fascinating topic. So two really great topics. Stay tuned to Wild Oak Living. Let's start by welcoming my first guest, uh, Jory. Louis, welcome. Let me make sure we can hear you. Welcome to Wild Egg Living, Jory. Thank you for having me. I think you are probably the um, the guest who, who's traveling the longest distance virtually to join us this morning. You are in Dakar, Senegal? Yeah, that's right. Wow, that's really exciting. I think this is my first call to Africa. I'm embarrassed, yeah. embarrassed to admit. <laughs> um, and we're going to be talking about your first book, which is called um, Slaves for Peanuts. And I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on this. And this is from the back cover of this book, um, a stunning work of popular history, the story of how a crop transformed the history of slavery. Americans consume over 1.5 billion pounds of peanuts every year, but few of us know the peanuts tumultuous history or its intimate connection to slavery and freedom. Lyrical and powerful slaves for peanuts deftly weaves together the natural and human history of a crop that transformed the lives of millions. Author Jory Lewis reveals how demand for peanut oil in Europe ensured that slavery in Africa would persist well into the 20th century, long after the European powers had officially banned it from the territories they controlled. Delving deep into West African and European archives, Lewis recreates a world on the coast of Africa that is breathtakingly real and unlike anything modern readers have experienced. Slaves for Peanuts is told through the eyes of a set of richly detailed characters, from an African-born French missionary harboring runaway slaves to the leader of a Wolof state navigating the politics of French imperialism who challenge our most basic assumptions of the motives and people who supported human bondage. At a time when Americans are grappling with the endurance, enduring consequences of slavery, here is a new and revealing chapter in its global history. And my guest, Jory Lewis, is an award-winning journalist who writes about agriculture and the environment. Her reports have appeared on PRI's The World and in Discover Magazine, Pacific Standard and the Virginia Quarterly Review, among others. In 2018, she received the prestigious Whiting Grant for Creative Nonfiction. Lewis lives in Dakar, Senegal, and Slaves for Peanuts is her first book. Welcome again, Jury, for joining us on Wild Egg Living. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for that introduction. What What motivated you to write this book? Well, I had been living in, I now have been living in Senegal for about 10 years off and on. And um, when I first came, I came with a different fellowship to study sort of food security in the region and, you know, in the agricultural economy. And um, peanuts were then and still are now a very important crop for Senegal. And I wanted to start, a, I sort of started to spend a lot of time in the peanut growing regions and sort of stumbled upon a kind of intersection between that and uh, a kind of like interior slavery, a slavery of that that was within Africa, uh, but of course is still informed by the needs and wants outside of Africa. I, I discovered a fascinating detail um, 
um, both in talking to your publicist and also in reading the introduction to your book, and that is something that 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 I think you were really surprised to discover as well, uh, and that is that um, in in Senegal at least, and I don't know if this is true for other parts of Africa, um, coming from uh, uh, from in, from an enslaved background is actually considered kind of a taboo subject. Yeah, that's that's true. Of course, it's not everyone, you know. Like there's there's sort of no taboo on Black Americans necessarily. Right? Okay. So it's like uh, if you're, yeah, there's a kind of um, what the what the sort of NGOs would say a kind of uh, discrimination based on descent. Uh, that's that's the code word for it. But yeah, there is a way in which the sort of stigma of enslavement still adheres to certain people. Of course. Of course, it changes. Money matters like it always does, right? And maybe the place where you are, if you go to the city or a big city, you might be able to sort of escape this kind of um, this impression of you, this sort of stigma. But especially in villages, it's an it's an active issue. It's still something that many people grapple with, this kind of um, descent-based discrimination and stigma. And this is a, 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 a stigma with within the culture, or is, so. In, in other words, you know, if, if you if if you if 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 two people are from a village and and one of them, you know, is has has uh, is has ancestry in uh, as an you know ancestors who were enslaved, is is that. Uh, or is or is that more of a of an, from the outside looking in? I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to understand how it would express itself in society. Yeah, yeah it's a it's an interior conversation people in those communities are having with each other. In fact, they don't talk about it with outsiders. It's only by a kind of you know sort of piece of luck. So yeah, the story I tell in the preface um, is that I was spending time in the peanut basin in a particular village where they were trying to create a kind of farmer's collective to grow different crops. So it's still growing peanuts, but off-season to grow high-value vegetable crops, mostly to export or to sell in cities. Um, and so the person that I thought was the best situated to be the president of the collective was excluded from consideration because he was descended from enslaved people. And so that's a kind of typical typical way um, the issue sort of comes to the fore. So like maybe a leadership positions, uh, positions in the mosque, um, marriages especially. Marriages are really big deals. So like when you, uh, you're getting married and people start looking around in their family trees, often it's to understand whether or not, you know, this person might have been, in, you know, has like a family that's like in, had been enslaved or maybe a, a, any number of other sort of um, Let's call them their their caste based uh, qualifications. So all of those things kind of um, get brought up in those situations, especially and especially in village contexts. What a fascinating and sad discovery! Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the the communities. I think that. Well, you know, of course, that's not actually the focus of my book. It sort of no, forms. No, no. I, I know, the, um, and, and we are going to yeah, no, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Explaining. The book is um, this sort of maybe inspired by that, maybe. And mm -hmm. then I sort of went to understand, like, what does enslavement look like? But, I mean, I think that the societies here in Senegal and in many parts of West Africa are hierarchical. And so there are many, um, there are many positions in society. Uh, there's a, and, you know, sort of the, you know, in fact, actually, the language people now use to talk about this sometimes or like it is based on caste. So there's, there's, um, mm. there's something sort of deep and powerful about it. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think it sort of resists our kind of um, our, you know, maybe from a point of view of American and a, a sort of desire to kind of map on our own understanding of, of race and society. It's its own thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was just so fascinated to discover that and and it it it, it was I guess one of the uh, one of the things that that um inspired you to write this book which is why I wanted to ex explore it a little bit. Um 
One of the things that, that I find really interesting is that, um, you know, peanuts and peanut and the products made from peanuts are fairly ubiquitous, um, across the world and, and especially in America. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a staple in people's diets. Um, and it's interesting that bef bef uh, before it became so, so popular, maybe even while it was already popular, um, peanut eater or somebody who eats peanuts was kind of a, a slur, right? And it was kind of, it was viewed not necessarily as something positive. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, there's a way in which I think the, as you talk, as you said, the sort of the way that the peanuts ubiquitous and feels like everyone eats it is kind of like democratization of food, right? Like it's accessible to everyone. Um, you know, we think that's, that that sort of status quo is the way it always was, but um, in the 19th century, the the relationship of of say like white Americans to peanuts was really fraught, right? So they, um, in general, peanuts weren't widely grown. They were grown mostly in the gardens of the enslaved, who were growing them for themselves. Uh, and then uh, you know that that relationship of enslaved people to peanuts itself sort of continued and had like also a kind of stigma for a broader audience. And it was only you know I don't really go into that in the book. It's not really focused, but I think you know things probably started to change closer to the end of the the century for a lot of reasons. Uh, I think you know peanuts started to be grown more widely. Uh, because there was a niche, uh, you know, that was getting more popular in cities. Uh, you know, it was being sort of taken up by other uh, sort of stigmatized groups like Italians who later kind of assimilated into to broader society, to wider society. So there, there are all these, all of these things sort of um, played a role, I think. And then probably also the, um, what do you call like the, the sort of increased processing that sort of happens like the beginning of the 20th century. I think and then you get peanut butter, uh, you know, all the time, like everywhere, like as you said. And peanut butter oil, as as a vegetable oil, is is also a really, a really important, um, a really important ingredient in 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 lots in lots of cuisines. We're we're discovering now, you know, how important sunflower oil is because it's now there's now a shortage of it of, of vegetable oil because the, the sunflower is no longer exported from the Ukraine so so this the peanuts and the pin and the oil derived from it was played a really important role or still plays a very important role doesn't it in the in um in the history of in slavery and and, and also in the history of Africa or at least some parts of Africa yeah that's right so uh, yeah, the context sort of I draw out in the book is that in the early 19th century, there's a shortage of oil, as you said, you know, where everything old is new again, right? So right. there was a shortage of oil for a lot of reasons. And actually, some of them were probably like supply side problems. Um, you know, the, the peanut actually gets sort of taken up, especially in France, because there's like a shortage of olive oil. And the peanut closely resembles um, the, the sort of chemical nature of peanuts, closely resemble, or peanut oil closely resembles olive oil and fit into, you know, the recipe for a particular French soap. So that's actually kind of one of the reasons peanut oil was on uptick. But yeah, there's this, you know, huge need for oil, for, um, for oiling machinery, for, and there's more machinery because of the industrial revolution and then of course the the soap industry as i just referenced but that's and and that's sort of on an uptick because of a hygiene revolution that's happening in europe where people are starting to bathe more often than they used to and all of those things sort of move together to create a demand for peanuts peanuts weren't the only uh you know sort of vegetable oil in demand also palm oil was in demand at the same time uh, so, you know, like the British opted for palm oil, and that's how you get things like palm olive, which is, still exists today. Um, but the French were were not fond of a sort of orangish, reddish, you know, reddish oil, you know, soap. So they, they opted for for this peanut oil, which which made a nice, clear white soap. Savon de Marseille, probably. <laughs> yes, the Savon de Marseille, so exactly that, you know, that they were... Saint Marseille was a, a, was also a major um, port for for the importation of peanuts. 
Ah, okay, so that's how that came together. I always wondered about that. Uh, let me just take a moment to let our listeners know that you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. It's all about living sustainably and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. And today we're going way beyond. Uh, we are joined by Jory Lewis, who is the author, who is an award-winning journalist, and she she writes about agriculture and the environment. Um, she lives in Dakar, Senegal, and she's joining us from Dakar, Senegal via Zoom today to talk about her book, Slaves for Peanuts. There are so many um, storylines, both historical as well as personal. You tell this the story of several people that, that relate to your world topic. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm trying to decide how to how to work our way through this so rather than me deciding i would i would like to you know have have you share with us um what do you think some of some of the some of the takeaways or stories or some of the things that you'd like to highlight about hmm. about what you share with us in your book slaves for peanuts oh. hmm. well i mean I uh, I always like to say that the book is in is three interwoven narratives, you know, with three different major characters. And so, one is the peanut itself. We kind of talked about that. That the peanut goes on a journey from its its place of origin in South America. We sort of imagine how it might have moved throughout Africa. I sort of engage in a lot of sort of like, you know research based dreaming, basically, to understand like how it moved, how it. Uh, was integrated into the culture, how it, it was integrated into cropping systems, uh, and then how it, uh, you know, sort of um, also altered the economic environment, so and altered the physical environment eventually. So that's this is the kind of peanuts trajectory, and then there's the kind of heart and soul of the book. The main the main character really, the kind of hero of our book, is a man called Walter Taylor. Who's a who's a Protestant missionary for a French mission, but he is him he's himself from Sierra Leone and he's from a family of uh, freed slave origin, and he um, Walter Taylor um, initiates this 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 refuge for runaway slaves uh, in Saint Louis, but that's um, part of a sort of project to both like proselytize specific populations of people but also feels uh, like an authentic calling for him that he wanted to help uh, people who are kind of subjugated in society create their own communities so that's kind of like a central tension we're kind of working with in the book to understand both Walter Taylor's struggles and uh, his motivations at the same time which is never quite clear uh, and then the third main character is the Wolof leader, the Wolof king of a kingdom uh, called Kajor. And Kajor is um, is renowned for its 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 good um, peanut growing soil, and so it becomes a kind of center of of uh, of of conflict really between um, between the people of this kingdom and and the French, which want who want to dominate it. So the story overall sort of in that storyline especially sort of helps us understand how the French are sort of moving, you know, sort of colonizing both through like active violence, right? And then like sometimes manipulation, but also through economic interest and kind of slowly like uh, breaking apart piece by piece, like the solidarity of Kajor, which kind of reaches its apex with this the uh, construction of a particular railroad through the middle of it. So I hope I did a pretty good job like summarizing that. But um, yeah, it's kind of. The, was it interesting for you to, or maybe what did, what did, you, do, what did you discover about um, the views and the history related to slavery that, that, you know, that we sort of commonly acquire and are exposed to in, in the U.S. as opposed to uh, European countries like like France, for example, what, what, did you discover anything about that? Well, I mean, the European countries like France, um, you know, also had like chattel slavery, like we had in the United States, right? They had it in their colonies, and then in the Americas, namely Haiti, which is um, also kind of referenced early on in the book, in the kind of 
shadow of he- of, of Haiti, which sort of colors, uh, even motivates uh, many of the abolitions that follow it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the question of slavery, I mean, it's interesting, of course, it's, it is both, um, I, I like to say that slavery is, um, is not one thing, mm. <laughs> you know, that there's a range of, of uh, enslavement systems, and those that range existed also in America, uh, and existed in Africa, right? So there's a different way of understanding um, enslavement, which isn't to mean that it's like, gentler or nicer right? but the, there are different um ways of understanding like this kind of unfree labor right so um yeah i think i mean that was the main it was very difficult in a way to wrap my mind around something so like in in senegal particularly in this region there are typically three categories of of uh enslaved people so they're the there are trade slaves, so those, those typically are newly captured uh, people who are uh, just now being, you know, they've just been sold into like a community, and those people can be sold again, sort of at will. There's sort of no taboo on that, but then there are the kind of like people who are born within the community but enslaved. Those people tend to not be sold, so there there's a kind of difference between the understanding hmm. we had maybe in America where. I think like everyone was up for sale, basically, you know. And then the ability, then there's a third class of slave of enslaved people, which is like a kind of administrative sort of military enslaved. That's it's a little bit complicated, and actually, to be honest, very hard to understand, you know. Mm. And I don't really talk about. It. I kind of make reference to it with another main character that he's a typically a an in, supposed to be a slave of the crown. So that means that he's only uh, only enslaved to the kingdom itself but in fact he was like a, a military general you know <laughs> so and a, and a person who had an enormous amount of say like trade slaves and and house slaves essentially so that's a little bit of a complication um but the biggest difference maybe between say like americans you know our understanding of sort of chattel slavery and this this slavery is the um ability to sort of integrate afterwards into a community so that um, if you were able to gain your freedom, maybe you could, you know, integrate in some way. You might, again, the stigma might still follow you, but you would, you would still be free, right? So there, there, are some, there are some differences, whereas in the United States, of course, there are many people who were able to buy their freedom, but not, um, not a huge amount. <laughs> And then their and their opportunities afterwards were limited as well, especially in places where there were like black laws sort of outlawing from doing various types of businesses or holding land or you know all kinds of uh, other types of um, laws meant to kind of continue to keep people down. You have. So a- I hope that answers your question. I, I think so. I mean, you know, this uh, getting into getting into the history of slavery and you know and and the various the various colonial forces involved in that would you know would 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 require a much a much broader discussion. I was just curious because, you know, it's it's um, um, I guess I guess maybe it's 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 different to look at the history of slavery and enslaved people, uh, you know, in. And it and its effects in Africa than it would be if you know if you went to the to the countries that actually, um, you know, received received the enslaved people from from Africa. That's I was I was and 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 then and there again it's different if 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 it was France or America or Germany or Dutch or however you know the the many many different colonial forces that that actually were involved in in slavery. So I was I was just curious about okay. what you learned in your book in your research for your book. Well, I don't I mean I think like chattel slavery is chattel slavery whether it's yeah. like French or British or American or right. whatever, you know what I mean? And it, it's, it's, and it's the same and it's it's in effect, yeah. 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 Yeah, and then I mean the the conclusion I'm sort of trying the sort of distinction I'm trying to draw between that and African slavery is just like like how integrative the societies are after people are um after people sort of overcome the enslaved status, right? Yeah. So like after they buy their freedom. 
like what's the possibility of integration and even rise within society and that's 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 what's a little bit different in, okay. in Africa as well and then the types of enslavement but again I think the book is more also about so like the even though you're kind of looking at this um this sort of interior African slavery as we would as as uh, which is what it is um it's still uh, a sort of enslavement that's in service to kind of global capital, right? And I think that's actually part of what's important to look at here, you know? Right, right. And that's sort of, as it does today, even back then, that spans, you know, country borders. Yeah. Yeah, right. absolutely. Right, yeah. Well, this first half hour has just flown by, and uh, I know we're almost out of time. We have a few minutes left, so I would rather than ask you more questions, you know, I would I would like for you to maybe share with us um, um, how people can get your book and 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 any contact information or websites that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the book is available at any major bookseller mm-hmm. that 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 online place that shall not be named as well as other places like bookshop. Um, and yeah, you can follow me on like Twitter. I'm at Jory Lewis or Instagram also, or my website is jorylewis.com. And Jory spelled J-O-R-I Lewis. And again, my guest is Jory Lewis, who is a journalist who wrote the book called that we're talking about today called Slaves for Peanuts. Um, just, just sort of by way of, by way of closure, um, you have a personal connection too, right? You tell a story in the book about how you visited, um, I think, was it relatives in the South during, during the summer and then came back with bags of peanuts? I just love the image of you sitting in the car with bags mm-hmm. of peanuts. Yeah, we're a very peanut-loving family. My, my my father was a big fan of peanuts. So, yeah, when we would go on family visits to my father's family in Arkansas, we would come back with lots of peanuts. And, you know, my father had uh, my father's family had a farm in the family that's, you know, since his he has like an ancestor who who had been enslaved and bought a farm after he was freed in in arkansas and so and that that piece of land had been in the family all the time until quite recently when they sold off but um yeah so i thought we were getting the peanuts from the farm but we weren't so so that's the story i sort of tell them yeah that's a great story it's i I, i'm I grew up in in Europe, but but peanuts played a, a pretty large role too. Although they were kind of special foods, they were they were the kinds of things that you would get like, you know, um, uh, around Saint Nicholas Day or Christmas, along with citrus fruit, along with oranges, which were also very special thing at that point. Well, you know, it's interesting too. So in other places, like in Germany and in the Netherlands, later there is like a peanut oil trade also for to make. Um, margarine, which apparently is what's big business in those areas. So, who knows? Like the the peanut oil touches all all things. The peanut, yes, and and it's it's also we didn't get to talk about that. It's a pretty fascinating crop in itself, in in how it grows and how it's harvested. So that that in itself is is is, is interesting to learn about. Thank you again, Jory Lewis, for joining us on Wild Oak Living all the way from Dakar, Senegal. Thank you, and all the best with your book and for all your future endeavors. Oh, thank you so much, Johanna. It was really a pleasure. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks, you too. You are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and I bring you Wild Oak Living every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. And uh, coming up, we're going to be joined by Leona Walden, who is going to be talking to us about... um, a reissue of of an old classic that came out in the seventies uh, called Country Women, and it's all gone. It's all about um, women, women basically homesteading, building homes, and and everything everything you have to know to make a living on the land. And we're uh, hopefully going to be joined by Leona in a couple of minutes, or maybe hopefully soon, <laughs> so that uh, we can talk about this book. I just want to. Uh, share some other information with you while we wait for Leona to join us. Um, maybe we'll go to a little musical break and then we'll come back. And I also want to talk to you about the 
about the uh, fire safe um, event that's coming up this weekend. So I'm going to go to a little moment of music, and when we come back, we will hopefully talk about both of those. Okay, hopefully we've got this resolved. Now we had a bit of a technical problem, but I think we are joined by Leona now. Leona, are you with us? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Okay. I'm glad we were able to finally make some technology work. The wonders of Zoom. Okay, well, welcome to Wild Oak Living, Leona. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Very, very much my pleasure. So... um there is so much to talk about, but um, I just would, would like to uh, to start out by giving a little bit of background, and I'm going to do that by way of um, of, of reading from the from the from the, some of the language from the back of the book. I, I find that that's all that's always a good way to summarize for my listeners what we're what we're talking about. So this is from a, a newly reissued book called Country Women, and. Um, and and I'm just going to give you some background, and then we're going to talk about the whole history about how it came about, and and also the illustration illustration work that uh, Leona did for and and her role in all of this. So let let me just give you a bit of background. The ind the countrywoman, the indispensable reference for the self-sufficient homesteader. This classic reference, which has we've informed two generations of women, is taken from the original homesteading publication, Country Women, written from the perspective of women learning and sharing all manner of farming knowledge on a small scale. It remains an invaluable guide. Encouragement and practical information infuse the reader with a deep respect for the land and personal journal entries throughout inspire a sense of self-sufficiency rooted in the earth. Born of the Back to the Land movement, this handbook chronicles the aspirations of tireless women seeking a new life on small farms around America. Authors Jean, Jeannie Chitralt and Sherry Thomas lived this philosophy and lifestyle as they eventually networked with like-minded women who share ideas, stories, and knowledge. Countrywomen which is not to be confused with the glossy upstart Country Women Country Woman magazine started as a small newsletter to share information between the small farms, collectives and communes scattered ab about the country. I'm sorry, my my iPad is acting up here. <laughs> Uh, eventually reaching 17,000 17, people by word of mouth. Readers were encouraged to contribute what they knew about gardening, raising goats, building a farm, or any other practical know-how valuable. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just wanted to give that a, by way of a background. Um, and Leona, you, you joined this. When did, when did you join this, this uh, adventure, or, or when did you help create this adventure? Uh, well, I was part of the movement that moved to the country uh, looking for a rural lifestyle and a commune to raise my daughter. And I came up here in 1972, and I moved on to a parcel of land with another couple and their seven boys under the age of 12, and uh, there was nothing on the land when we got here. So we were definitely homesteaders coming to make a new life. It's interesting. I, I I read there's a there's a really beautiful write up of of the story of the book and and the whole sort of homesteading movement associated with it uh, on the coast in the March edition of Real Estate Magazine. I thought Sita Borsic did a wonderful job, um, especially for people like me who weren't around at that time, um, describing what happened and also setting the historical context. And one of the things that she just talks about in the article is that. Um, the New York Times called this. Um, I'm I'm looking for the for the reference, but something like the the New York Times called this like um, the la back to the land migration. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, from the late '60s to the mid '70s, nearly a million young people went back to the land. That's a right. that's a pretty big movement. Right. And I think the reason they uh, brought the book out again is because people, once again, are moving to the rural area. Though I think it's a different demographic type of situation, since most people are moving here because we now have the technology to work from home. And so people are moving to the rural areas and homesteading. Some of them are homesteading and uh, enjoying the 
beauty of this countryside. So yeah, I think I think the difference seems to be that that you know to come here today, you pretty much you pretty much have to have either family money or money saved up or 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 a really good income working remotely. It's it's not like it was when you came here with uh, with with where very little you and and many of your fellow fellow communards. Although one other possibility is work. What we did was we bought land together as a group. Ah, and. Communal living enabled us to buy the property, because back then, several of us had no income whatsoever. I had a small income, but uh, they had no other way of, you know, they did odd jobs to earn enough money even just to pay the land payment, which back then was $60 a month. And then we had another $60 for food and all of our other necessities, so our total monthly uh, due money was $120. So... Living group in a group sometimes works that way. So. We talked when we talked about this interview uh, um, on the phone a couple of days ago. I mentioned that one of the things that I've always wondered about. I came here in 1998, so I'm a relative latecomer. I'm not, you know, I'm not part of the. I was I was a little bit too young to be a hippie. I'm, I'm um, I was kind of a child hippie, a teenager hippie, <laughs> but. Um, uh, one of the things I always wondered about is, is, you know, you hear the stories about people living here and, and buying land together and sharing, you know, the expenses and sharing living and, and, and sort of living in, in a communal context. Some of that is still around and if certainly the spirit is still around. Um, but many of these, uh, communes uh, and communal living experiments didn't make it. And I'm just wondering what you found worked and and didn't didn't work uh, and and what people what young people nowadays can learn from that experience well i think we originally came together with a common desire which was to raise our children in a group setting and so we had that and then we had weekly meetings where we aired our issues and everybody listened and worked together to work things out and i think that that kept things from piling up and becoming problems over time so that was a very good system. There's several groups uh, here still that are from that time that are still living communally, but many of them have sort of shifted a little bit. So it's not when we shared a kitchen, we all ate at the bunkhouse. Um, you know, we were wife for a week and uh, did everything for one week, and then for seven weeks, because at that time there were seven adults. That for seven weeks, we got to come to dinner. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was it was nice. It was very freeing in a lot of ways. So I think it's still possible, but it's uh, goodwill between people that counts a lot and similar desires. I'm really amazed by the um, by the connection between between you know, the women that were part of this movement and, and, and sort of the spirit that gave rise to First Country Women magazine and, and, and Country Women, the book. Um, do you think that came sort of out of the, out of the, the sort of, um, I don't know what to, I don't know what other word to give it rather, other than, other than hippie because that's what we associate with that period. Do you think that came out of that sort of, um, spirit of the time? What do you think, what do you think makes for that, for that connection between women? And that seems to be going on even today. Right. I think in that period of time, women were searching for their identity as individuals as opposed to the, a partner in the relationship. And so a group of women got together in the late 60s, and they met weekly or monthly. I'm not sure because I wasn't part of it. And they did practice a lot of different things. And after about three years of meeting, they decided to do this magazine, and they called it Country Women. And it was written by, first, the initial issue was mostly written by the, the group of women, and I think it was eight or ten of them, who were here, and then uh, one of the women, Sherry Thomas, uh, was from the East Coast, and she would drive back to see her family, and on her way, she would bring the magazine with her and go to all these little bookstores, and it spread out across the country, and then we started getting lots of articles from women all over the United States, and the emphasis of the magazine, half of it was practical, and half of it was consciousness-raising, I would, sort of general categories. 
And it was uh, as a result of the fifth issue, which is focused on homesteading. Each issue had a had a focus on it, and the fifth issue was homesteading. And I came into the group in 1972, so it was well established, and they decided to do the magazine. And actually, Carmen Goodyear had already done the drawing for the cover of the magazine, which is was used all, almost all the way through its history. And I offered to do a drawing, and they. You know, they said, sure, you can do a drawing. And then as I participated in the next five issues or four issues, they kept asking me to do more and more drawings. And so on the fifth issue, they asked me pretty much to illustrate it, although there was always articles with other women's, you know, the women from the group and other women from across the United States and, and also illustrations that came with those. So that issue, um, the magazine was was hand-collated. It was... Uh, Initially printed in San Francisco, but eventually printed up here, uh, a newspaper, newsprint type of um, format. And we hand collated it. And Pat Cody was one of the distributors. She had Cody's Bookstore, one of the biggest bookstores in Berkeley. And she suggested that we do a book from the homesteading issue of the magazine. And that's where Country Women, the book, came from. And so they decided it was a good idea. So they they kept collecting articles from across the country, and they wrote a whole bunch of articles. And um, uh, let's see, hold on a second here. Uh, Sally Bailey uh, came out and photographed in this area. So all the, the most of ninety percent, ninety-five percent of the photographs are of the local people here that actually worked on the magazine and were homesteaders. And. Uh, I illustrated it, and I was trying to figure out how long it took. I think it was close to two years that I worked on it. One of the interesting things for me was I spent 35 hours on one drawing. I think it's a drawing that illustrates a poem about bees. And then I actually, well, I had to build my house, and I remembered that when I raised the first wall, it had taken a whole day to frame it, and I raised a two-story wall. And I thought it takes me eight hours to raise a wall on a house and 35 hours to do a drawing on a piece of paper. <laughs> and I think that set me into building, which is something I've loved to do all my life, and I have since built several places. So, But the, magazine, the, the book itself has so many helpful hints in it and interesting stories about people raising sheep, you know, finding a water system, building a hen house, just so much practical information that came from our experiences here and my personal experience too. And, and that is that is still very very relevant right it's interesting that a whole it, uh, with with this movement uh, uh, away to working at home and getting people leaving offices you know that 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 was um, i think um, strengthened it had already gone on before but it was strengthened certainly by the pandemic um People are rediscovering all the things that you all discovered in the 70s. Right. And I think one of the interesting things is because it was written by women, it, women coming at it from, like, no background in um, building or no background in, you know, I don't know, I just caring for animals, veterinary stuff, you know, it was written in a very way to be accessible. So it's, you know, it's yes. lots and lots of information for people who are starting out on things. Rather than experts for experts. Right. Or, or great details into, you know, the minutia of something. It's like how to get it going. Right. I just want to let our listeners know that you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX and Z. This is Johanna Wild Oak. I bring you this program, Wild Oak Living, every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. It's all about living sustainably and building community in Mendocino County and beyond, which is why this topic that we're talking about today is so apropos for this program. And I was so excited when I heard about the fact that you are having a, um, and the reason I wanted to do this program today uh, is because you are having a book signing coming up, right? 
Um, let, let me just, let me just, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish my introduction. I'm sorry, I jumped a bit here. My guest <laughs> that I'm talking to today is Leona Walden, and she is the illustrator of a newly reissued classic called Country Women, a Handbook for the New Farmer that originally came out in 1976 and has now been reissued. And you're doing a book signing for that book uh, this weekend. Yes, on Saturday, the 21st of May at Gallery Bookshop. And it's at 1 to 3. And I'll have copies of the book there and also copies of the Real Estate Magazine for anybody who didn't get a chance to pick it up, which is just a marvelous article about that period of time and the origins of the book. And with great pictures. I love the photographs in that article. <laughs> and I go back a long way. <laughs> I'm just amazed it has a picture of one of the houses that you built in 1972. Uh, and at, at Salmon Creek Farm, and boy, rather than just you know picking an easy place to build, you you built it on a hillside. Well, the only choices there were there was a large one large meadow. Most of the property was steep hillside. There was one large meadow, and then there were logging roads, and that was a logging road. And I got there with my three year old daughter in July, and I heard that it rained a lot here. I mean, sixty seventy inches. And I thought, I need something to live in. I can't live in a tent in, with my daughter. So I got a book on how to build a wood frame house, and from that I built a small cabin. It was uh, actually 11 feet wide because the logging road was 12 feet wide and, and 16 feet long. And um, I scavenged a lot of the materials. We tore down chicken coops in Petaluma for old-growth redwood 2 by 4 A fellow I knew that had a mill gave me bender board, which is what I sided it with, which is still there and still works. The picture that's actually in the magazine is of the house after it was added to. So uh, my original part was the part closest when you look at it, it's the front of the front part of it that you look at. And the rest, rest of it actually was built by Dawn Hofberg, who acquired the house after me, and she added to it. But all of the cabins that are there, uh, all but one of them, I think, is still standing, and they've been rejuvenated, and they're still being used in a communal fashion. They look great. Yeah, so it's great. A fellow named Fritz Haig bought the property and has continued to use it in a very satisfactory fashion, very much still in line with what we had about being living lightly on the land and being close to nature and preserving things, which was all part of our philosophy. Yeah, speaking of philosophy, um, my guest, Leona Walden, she is the illustrator of a book called Country Women, a Handbook for the New Farmer. Is there a website associated with the book that people can go to to get more information? Uh, not that I know of. The publisher is Echo Point Books, mm -hmm. is the publisher. Um, but it's also carried on Amazon and, of course, our local bookstores. And the bookstores in Fort Bragg also have it. There's two little bookstores in Fort Bragg that have it. So we have three stores here on the coast that carry it. And you'll, you'll be at, uh, at Gallery Books in Mendocino on Saturday. When was the time again? From 1 to 3. From 1 to 3, signing books and signed books will be available there. Um, and also, if you would like to read the article and can't get your hands on on a physical copy of the Real Estate Magazine, if you go to their website uh, or if you just Google Real Estate Magazine Mendocino and go and look in their archives for the March edition, you will find Country Women on the cover. And that edition, there will be a PDF, PDF copy of that edition of Real Estate Magazine, and you can read all about it. It also has at the end of the article some really interesting links to other articles um, and also um, some other books that you might be interested in. So, for example, another local book is West of Eden, Communes in Utopia in Northern California. Uh, and uh, there's a film that was also made um, um, called Women on the Land, Creating Conscious Community. This topic deserves to be explored much more fully, and I will do that in future programs, Leona, and maybe we can bring in some other people as well and, and do a full one-hour program, but I wanted to make sure that today I get this information out because you are, going, as I said, going to be signing copies of the books at Gallery Bookstore in Mendocino this Saturday at 1 o'clock. We have about two minutes left, Leona, for any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with us. I'd like to say something about my illustrations. So uh, 
lot of more technical drawings to explain the articles, but I no one stood over me and told me what to do or not to do, and so I was playful with the drawings. I added lots of little hidden creatures and funny little changes and lots of different things. The other thing I'd like to say is the book has Nancy Tassell's calligraphy in it. She doesn't get much credit for it, but all of those script writing that you see in there is all her calligraphy, and she was a marvelous calligrapher. And again, the, the uh, illustration that I said called Bees, if you get a chance, do look and take a look at that, because it's just a remarkable combination of my illustrations, but all, mostly her calligraphy, which was fantastic. So uh, I had great fun doing it, and actually I illustrated uh, seven books uh, total in about three years period, but the Country Women was my prize, so the one I liked the best. So I well, hope you guys come to see me, meet me, and let me give you a book and uh, a copy of the magazine, uh, the Real Estate Magazine. This Saturday at one, at 1 o'clock at Gallery Books in Mendocino. Yes, that's right. Great. Thank you so much, Leona, for join Leona Walden for joining us this morning. Thank you for all the work that, that you've done in support of women and sustainability and, uh, and for, for your role in the role of many of the wonderful women in our community who have done so much to build our community. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay, we have come to the end of Wild Oak Living, almost. We've got a couple of minutes left. Um, I want to make sure that uh, you know about a wildfire safety expo that's happening also this weekend. Uh, in it's kind of kind of around the same time as the signing of the at the bookstore, but you know maybe different people are going to be interested in different things. But uh, if you go to um, firesafemendocino.org, you can find out all about this uh, combination of a homebrew beer festival and wildfire safety fair that's happening this Saturday afternoon in Anderson Valley. And again, the book signing for Country Women with Leona Wall is at Gallery Books this Saturday at 1 p.m. Please join me again two weeks from today on, on uh, June 2nd at 9 a.m. for another edition of Wild Oak Living. If you have any suggestions or if you represent organizations that you think would be in, of interest to be featured on Wild Oak Living, please send me an email, contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at w-i-l-d-o-a-k dot o-r-g. Uh, I love hearing suggestions of topics and I love hearing um, from organizations that would like to be interviewed. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.